From the Los Angeles Times, this is Nikki Wisensee Egan, and you're listening to a special bonus episode of Chasing Cosby. On this episode, you're going to hear a live discussion about the downfall of America's dad from those closest to the story. The panel was moderated by Pat Morrison of the LA Times. I'm on the panel alongside Andrea Constand, Tamara Green, Lily Bernard, and Therese Saragnis, who you heard from in earlier episodes of this podcast. It was recorded at the Skirball Center in Los Angeles in front of a live audience. Thank you, everyone, and welcome. appreciate your being here tonight. We are gathering to talk with women who stood up to ridicule and threats and survived their personal demons to show the world who the real Bill Cosby was. And maybe it's coincidence and maybe it's karma, but we're doing so on a night that is barely 48 hours after a jury found another famous Hollywood figure, Harvey Weinstein, guilty of rape and sexual assault. Years ago, the movie studios in Los Angeles, an executive of that studio, had a back entrance to the office. And the story was that every day at 4 o'clock, a different young woman who worked at that studio went through that door for what one writer called the movie mogul's daily sex siesta. When the studio chief left, that door got bricked up. And now similar doors like it, metaphorical doors and literal doors that powerful men had opened to young women and then closed behind them are now being closed forever. Tonight we find out more about how it happened, about how the pinchers closed on the secret life and the conduct of one of the most beloved figures of modern television, and how the women who were made to feel they had no power and no worth exerted their power And I don't think there is a woman in this room who hasn't been harassed or intimidated in some fashion by some man who outranked her, and that includes me. So power to all of you women. Well deserved. So let's meet the investigative reporter whose persistence and skill over more than 15 years of covering the story, back when other reporters didn't even think it was a story, helped to bring this matter to life. Nikki Wisensee Egan. Let's watch the video. I was really proud of the coverage I was contributing to the debate in 2005. Joining me now is Philadelphia Daily News reporter Nicole Weissensegan, and who interviewed uh, the second woman to come forward and accuse Bill Cosby. The Cosby team uh, is basically, you know, they seem to be chastising the paper for going forward with the story even after uh, they denied it. What do you make of that? Typical um, strong-handed tactics by them. They want to try to clamp down on anything that might possibly put the people that the person that they work for in a bad light. I mean, there was a lot of intimidation going on, frankly. The way other media outlets handled the story in 2005 is what was really shocking to me. Make no mistake about this, as, as everyone on the panel knows, this having happened 30 years ago was in no way admissible in a criminal court. Uh, and I don't think that it, that's even the issue. Can I interject you know, something here? Go ahead, Nicole. Um, I want to correct something that your your guest just said. It is possibly admissible in a Pennsylvania court, this woman's testimony today. And now a judge would have to rule on this, but it has been ruled admissible in other cases. Are you an attorney? First of all, are you an attorney? Is she an attorney? So, Nikki, please come on out. The mention of of the name Harvey Weinstein, when that conviction came down, a Cosby spokesman called it a very sad day in the American judicial system as if he was invoking some 
brotherhood of victimhood. That's striking. Well, nothing, Andrew Wyatt does surprises me anymore. <laughs> Sad to say, he, you know, they have crossed the line so many times, I don't think they even know where the line is. All of this was before the Me Too movement. In a, and, and you picked up on this when other people were not, and you saw something that these women were doing or saying, starting with Andrea, who will be joining us in a minute. What was it that resonated with you that said, as a reporter, there's something to this? Mainly it was when I found out the identity of the person accusing Bill Cosby, because um, at first, of course, they didn't release her name, but I had a source, at which they're not supposed to with sexual assault victims, but that quickly changed for Andrea because the media began running her name and photo without her permission. Um, but I, I had a source at Temple who knew her and said that she was, had a stellar reputation there. Everybody liked her. Um, they were kind of blown away by the whole situation, and they said, all I know is you don't say anything about Bill Cosby and Temple without thinking about it really carefully. And then because I had her name, although we didn't use it until we had her permission, I was able to do a clip search on her and found out she was one of the top basketball players in high school in Canada. She was recruited by 50 to 60 colleges in the U.S., ultimately choosing the US, University of Arizona. Um, she dreamed, um, grew to dream to play professionally for the WNBA, went to play in Europe after graduating, and when that dream didn't come true, she got a job offer from Don Staley at Temple and took that. And none of it added up to a person who would make up a charge like this against, especially against a beloved national, pretty much international icon like Bill Cosby. And then I found out she had taped phone calls that supported her side of the story. And when I really became convinced was when the Cosby people began lying about her. They could not find anything about her in her past to try to destroy her credibility. So they lied about these taped phone calls and said it was Andrea's mom made this call before Andrea went to police and was trying to shake down Cosby. And when they start lying about someone, you know that there's something there. So you got pushback already from the Cosby people, but what kind of pushback did you get from your colleagues even on a story like this? You know, it's funny. My paper, and I say this to this day, and I mean it, I don't think there's any other paper in the country that would have let me pursue this story in 2005 the way the Daily News did. Hmm. However, you know, when this rebroke again in 2014, and um, I was sitting there going, this is deja vu all over again, but one of my former colleagues put on a note, they said, remember, Nikki, when none of us believed these stories when you were writing them in 2005? And I said... Actually, I didn't know that, but thank you. <laughs> so, um, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on behind my back that I didn't know about, but I trusted my own reporting. Apart just from the particulars of this case, there were so many myths that you had to push back against that ended up being dealt with in court as well about the myths of sexual assault, of course, the cult of celebrity that surrounded this man in particular. There were, because, you know, one of the things I delve into in, in the book I wrote about this is how this, we are a celebrity-worshipping culture here in the U.S. And, you know, You're I, telling the right audience here. <laughs> you know, we are. And, I, you know, I, look, I was as guilty of it as anyone. I thought Bill Cosby was Cliff Huxtable. I grew up watching Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids on Saturday mornings. I loved the Cosby show. And when this story broke in Philly, I mean, my initial reaction was not the cause, because I didn't want to believe it. But my job as a journalist is to put my personal feelings aside and try to get at the truth. So it was hard because, you know, it was not something that, you know, I wanted to dismantle, but it quickly became clear to me that there was a lot of truth to this. And when Tamara Green, the second accuser, came forward and told her story to me exclusively, and then there were 12 more women in 2005 that people don't realize. There were 14 women accusing Bill Cosby in 2005. And total more than five dozen 
in That all. was later. But the DA cut short the investigation and, you know, just clearly from the very beginning wanted nothing to do with this case. And even his first press release about the case disparaged Andrea. And, and, and oftentimes, you know, even the victims um, themselves, the women who survived this, there's an obvious reluctance to come forward because of the very things that happened here, what happened to their lives and the threats that were put forward on them under those circumstances. You and I both know 50, 80 years ago in newspapers, you didn't even identify a rape victim because it was considered to ruin her life. So you couldn't even quote her or cite her by name. But so doubly so with the fact, uh, with the presence of a famous man, that these women would be willing to talk to you. How difficult was it? Did you find they really did want to tell their stories, but they needed the safety of numbers to do so? And I think that's exactly what happened. I don't think that people understand what an extraordinary amount of courage it takes to come forward about a man like Bill Cosby. I mean, most people never heard of Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein before the scandal broke. Bill Cosby was a national, if not international, icon. He was America's dad. He was wealthy beyond anyone's imagination. And to come forth and make an allegation like this against a man where none of this had really been ever out there about him takes an extraordinary amount of courage. And I would get so upset when people would say, oh, these women want their 15 minutes of fame. And I say, who wants to be famous for being raped? If you want your 15 minutes of fame, you know, do a YouTube video or something like that. But every mistake you've ever made in your life, you bet that they're going to find it and they're going to leak it. They can't put it in a court of law because rape shield laws prevent that. So they leak it to the media. And that's what happened to Tamar Green. I mean, and with, with Andrea, they couldn't find anything on her. So they made up lies about her and leaked it to the media and the media ran with it. Um, so it is. it takes an extraordinary amount of courage to come forward against someone like him. There still is a sense of the, the case law was still being made as, as this was going on. There was not, as you point out, even a clear definition of consent in, in Pennsylvania law. And there still isn't, but the really, and this is what's under appeal right now, um, these 404B witnesses, so there were five women that the judge allowed to testify at the second trial who said that Bill Cosby had done the same thing to them as he did to Andrea. And the courts in Pennsylvania have never ruled on how many of those witnesses are too many. They're, they're, not, they're just supposed to show a similar pattern of behavior. It's not that he's being charged with it criminally or anything, but they're just sort of, they're there to support the pattern. And so that's what's under, I think, if anything is valid about being appealed by Bill Cosby, I think they might address that. Because and it flummoxed the jury, said. too. The jury was struggling for a definition, I guess. Well, they asked for, that was the first question they had, does Pennsylvania, what's the definition of consent in Pennsylvania? And the judge told them there is no definition hmm. in this case. So, but in Pennsylvania, just believing the victim is enough to convict on a sexual assault case in Pennsylvania. And ultimately, that's what it broke down to. They believed Andrea and they believed the five women who testified about the same thing happening to them. And they didn't believe many of Cosby's witnesses. Well, there, there were, throughout your podcast, you refer to the, the Cosby spokesman. There was one line, I think, was it repeated at least once in every podcast, which was to the effect of, the Cosby spokesman had no comment. Right. And the... the the evidence, the information that you put before him seems so incontrovertible, although in court, Cosby's defense, if he mounted one, was it was consensual. Well, I think their strategy, just like they didn't acknowledge the book, is just to not acknowledge the podcast. In fact, one of the, the only comment Andrew Wyatt sent me was, may Jesus bless you on all your projects. 
And when I was writing Seriously, the book, Seriously or tongue-in-cheek, do you think? No, I probably meant it. Um, and the, when I reached out to him for comment for the book, he said, well, I can't comment for you because Mr. Cosby is working on a, his own book, and we have exclusive interviews with all his celebrity friends, his family, and everything. So that's what we're going to be doing. He did have, for a time, a lot of famous people, friends, co-workers in his corner. Um, and gradually, a lot of them shifted their opinion and moved away as the evidence became palpable. But one woman, I think it was Felicia Rashad, said this was about, that the attacks were about obliterating his legacy. When we look at someone like Harvey Weinstein, when we look at Bill Cosby, should their legacies be obliterated? Cosby's television shows are no longer being aired. Obviously, his, no. he's not in a position to work. He's in prison. Well, first of all, it's still on TV One because oh. the Cosby show is still... They did take it off of TV land. Um, but I actually think it's, it's more of an individual decision, and it's up to you. Do you think all the good he did obliterates the fact that what he did to destroy so many lives of these women? I mean, there are 64 known accusers. I think the numbers are actually in the hundreds, if not the thousands. Hmm. And we'll never know. If they come forward again, maybe we will. But, you know, each victim who's come forward, um, other victims have contacted them afterward. I mean, there's a lot, still a lot of fear of him because he started suing the women for defamation after they came forward. And not a lot of these women have the resources to fight that. He used his homeowner's insurance to fight the defamation claims against him by the women who did win last year. Um, but a yeah. lot of these women, you know, they'd end up fighting it on their own and they don't have the resources. You heard Nikki mentioning Andrea. Let's bring her on. But first see a video of Andrea Constant. It was very, very painful for me to see um, the, the many, many women coming forward. The minute I saw Andrea, I believed her. No doubt that I believed that that had happened. And I, it hurt me that from my time period to this time, 2005, that he was still doing it. I fought with my sisters for so many years to try to help justice be served for Andrea Constant, for other survivors of rape, for rape culture, to shift society towards believing women. I'm really glad that they found the courage to come forward and support me. I don't think we'd be here today having this conversation um, if it wasn't for other people feeling like the most important for thing for them to do was also to lift their voices up and be in service um, to another young woman who was struggling, being re-victimized um, in the media. And so I'm, I'm very thankful and very blessed. Please welcome Andrea Constant. can't see it, but that was a standing ovation. <laughs> so thank you for Thanks. being here. And thank you for being, however inadvertently it happened, the, the first voice, the first recognizable, identifiable voice to come out in this. We'll talk a little bit about your foundation to, to help women, but First of all, how did it happen that you got pushed or stepped into the spotlight on this? In what, 
when the news broke without well, I your think consent. to go back, yeah, um, you know, it was being home in in Toronto, and I I think probably the media really when when you think about spotlight um, coming forward, it was it was really the media that that was stirring around that really brought me into the spotlight. And, and of Nikki course, said my that voice. I, some a, a report had been released with your name on it without your consent or knowledge. That's correct. Yeah. And once you, you were in the spotlight, did you think there are so many other women, as you found other women, that you had to stand up and stand out to? You know, I thought I was actually the only one. And I, I think the, that's the consensus, is that everybody pretty much thought they were the only one. I thought I was really, you know, the only person that it happened to, but I, I didn't want it to happen to anybody else. So it was a, it was mind blowing to know the, um, to know what was, what had really happened before it had happened to me. So. And it's hard to overestimate how life altering this is, with someone who you had trust in, someone who was associated with your university too, and affiliated in the most respectable of ways. Yeah, I think Nikki probably touched on it a little bit in terms of um, the magnitude of uh, Cosby and, and what he represented, and I think the celebrity culture that Nikki spoke to, and being America's dad, and... Um, you know, I had to really kind of step forward and be big and, and be brave and, you know, do the right thing. What went into that decision to step forward? Because in spite of all the attention, you could have just said, no, shut your door, not answer your phone. I didn't want it to happen to anybody else. Whether your New Year's resolution is rising with the sun every morning or learning to love cardio... Parachute's quality home essentials make pushing your comfort zone much more comfortable. And setting these new routines will change the foundation of how you start and end each day. This year, I'm hoping to get to bed earlier each evening so that I have time to read more books. Now that I use Parachute's linen duvet cover, it makes it so much easier to stick to my goal because going to bed is just that much better. But Parachute is more than just luxurious materials. Their everyday essentials are designed in Los Angeles and responsibly manufactured by the world's best craftspeople. They'll only use the finest materials, ensuring long-lasting, quality home essentials. That's because Parachute believes that when we take care of home and the materials in it, it takes care of us. Visit ParachuteHome.com Cosby for free shipping and returns on Parachute's premium quality, very comfortable home essentials. That's ParachuteHome.com slash Cosby for free shipping and returns. Do you feel like there are things in your life preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is here for you, and it's so convenient. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment that allows you to get help on your own time and at your own pace. Plus, you can schedule your sessions in the format that best suits your need. Video, phone, text, or online chat. Their counselors are all incredibly professional and specialized in so many areas. Anxiety, depression, trauma, stress, and more. And of course, anything you share with them is secure and fully confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And Chasing Cosby listeners get a special offer of 10% off your first month with the discount code Cosby. 
So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash chasing Cosby. Just fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash chasing Cosby. Nikki, did, did you have to get Andrea's confidence, especially after she'd been so sort of metaphorically dragged through it by the press coverage she'd gotten? Um, well, Andrea and I didn't really actually get to know each other until within the last year. Because really? I, I, yeah, I always went through her attorneys. That's what I was supposed to do. There was a criminal case, then there was a civil case, then there was an NDA. Huh. And so that's what I went through. And then we had this moment right before closing arguments um, on the second trial where we, our eyes met and, you know, all that. And then I spoke to her briefly at sentencing, um, but introduced her to Tamara Green because Tamara had also been put through the ringer. But really, we haven't really gotten to know each other till you know, this project. But she's what? everything I thought she was in 2005. <laughs> I mean, she, really, there were no, once I started digging into her and her background in 2005, it was, I mean, I didn't know her then, but it was very clear to me what type of person she was. So there's nothing that I, I mean, if anything, she's more amazing than <laughs> she was back then because it really, for, you know, everybody, when the second trial, Cosby's attorneys were trying to say, oh, she's out for money, she's a con artist. And I thought, you know, this doesn't even make sense. If she's out for money, she got it in 2006. So why is she here? And, you know, why is she doing this not just once, but twice? Because it's so much fun to be called a con artist and headlines all over the world. Yeah. You know, it just didn't even add up to lo logically. Um, so that's... Not speaking of Cosby, but, but in general about the culture, the things that you have learned through this that have dismayed you and the things you've learned that have encouraged you about people, about men, women, authority? Well, um, can you repeat your question? Well, so I thought just, you were asking I mean, Nikki we, the question. When, so I, I was <laughs> when we come up against big things in our life, we have preconceptions about things. And I'm not speaking specifically of Cosby. I'm talking about you know, preconceptions about how the system works. You know? Um, you know, that, that women are said to be one thing in fact or another. The same thing is true as men. How those, your perceptions of those change. They're, they're part of everybody's growing process, but you were forced into this so intensely. I just, um, I think I, I always just believed in my heart that doing the right thing um, would bring some positive and some good. And I think that's really what's been driving me. I didn't know that it, um, that it would really start a movement and really by lifting my voice that others, others' voices, you know, that they would come out of silence as well. So um, I, I just believe that, you know, I thank mom and dad and grandma and grandpa for giving me the wherewithal and and the morals and, and the values and, and the strength to, to kind of just step forward. Can you explain what your foundation does? So I started a foundation um, and it's, it's called Hope Healing and Transformation. And we, we are just in our infancy right now, but we're going to be creating an app for survivors um, that is gonna have a mind, body, spirit program. Uh, resources, a library that are, it's, it's all trauma-informed. And we're going to have emotional support and legal support that um, they can access right through the app. Um, we're bringing technology in 2020 and what survivors' needs are right to their fingertips. 
um, we hope to like feature in e-chat and messaging um, so that that all can be facilitated in the way that a lot of kids are communicating nowadays. And I think um, I, this is really something that I wish I had. I was just going to say these are <laughs> things that none of them was available to you 15 years ago. Right. Have you heard from anybody yet who's saying, when is it online and when can I get it? Yes, we have a wait list for the SAFE oh app. It's called the SAFE app. And SAFE stands for Survivors Achieving Freedom and Empowerment. And um, really that's what this journey's been about. And we were hoping to launch the app on May 31st. And we've had a lot of sexual violence resources counselors, um, advocates, um, rape crisis counselors contact us and they would like to be able to get the app as soon as it comes out. So Terrific. Yeah, we're hoping it's, it's going to be a resource not only for survivors to be able to download, but also some of the programming that's in there that um, it can be referred and recommended by um, coalitions and rape crisis centers and counselors. Good. Well, before we bring our, our next guest on, I want to ask Nikki about how you perceive, we're talking about this foundation, the new resources, the new attitudes that are available. How is this changing the culture? How is it moving the needle on understanding this kind of criminal, this kind of offense? Oh, well, I th don't think it's a coincidence that the month, a month after Bill Cosby was convicted, Harvey Weinstein was criminally charged. They had um, been toying with that case for months, and they, there were these detectives who, you know, had made these disparaging comments about the victims. They had to change prosecutors. All of a sudden, Bill Cosby gets convicted, and the next month, Harvey Weinstein is charged. And I think that the Cosby survivors were the precursors to the whole Me Too movement. And, and I don't think they get nearly enough credit for that. Um, maybe because, as I said, maybe it's because none of, you know, you know, the, meet, the Harvey Weinstein accusers were all celebrities. They were all household names, and maybe that's the reason, and maybe it's because, you know, in Bill Cosby's case, he was a celebrity himself, and people just don't want to... Hollywood had a lot to do with enabling him for many, many years. There were a lot of people who knew what he was doing in Hollywood and did nothing, and I don't think that they want to acknowledge their own culpability in this. So, um, you know, it's easier for people to believe that a Harvey Weinstein did something because nobody heard of him before the scandal broke. And a lot of people knew who Bill Cosby was, and a lot of people knew what Bill Cosby was doing. So I still think there's a lot of protecting of him going on in Hollywood. So let's bring on our next guest, but before she comes on stage, I want you to watch a video. This is Tamara Green, who was also a survivor of these predations. And this is how she reacted when she heard the news about Andrea. I first heard about Andrea Constan's allegations against Bill Cosby when I was standing in my kitchen ready to go for the start of my day and I heard a news flash that said that Bill Cosby had been accused of sexual drugging and sexually assaulting a woman in Pennsylvania. And at first I was astounded because I started to try to count up how old is he now, huh? And I thought, really, at his age, he's still doing that? And then I had a sense of satisfaction thinking, well, now they'll get him. When Tamara Green called me um, and I found out she was going to give me an exclusive interview, being the second accuser to come forward against Bill Cosby, I was, you know, in shock. 
After my story about Tamara ran on the cover of the Daily News, we got inundated with phone calls of people trying to reach her. Now, Tamara, since you've come forward, you've taken a lot of heat. Um, and some things in your background have come out in DUI and some other things with the, with the Bar Association. And Bill Cosby um, has also come out and, and said that you're lying. I want to read a statement, if I could. This is from Bill Cosby's lawyer responding to the allegations. It says, quote, Miss Green is peddling a highly defamatory fictional story about something she claims occurred with Mr. Cosby three decades ago. He further says her claims are false, fabricated, and defamatory. Mr. Cosby denies her assertions. What do you say to that? Well, what do you expect him to say? He really has no choice but to say that. Tomorrow, Green. <laughs> She is. <laughs> Tamara, can you pull the mic up and toward you a little bit? You yes. can lift it up a little. No, you just move it. Just you. swing it around on the boom arm. There we go. Hello. And we can lift it up a little. There we are. Good. Testing. Yeah. There we okay. go. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I guess I was, as I was watching this before, when, before we came on stage, I was so shocked to see the word groped. And I thought, groped? Really? It, it, a reporter colleague of mine said in the 50s and 60s they wouldn't even use the word raped in print, they said harmed. And so the idea of these euphemisms that kind of let people slide away are a little bit shocking. So, so your, your encounter with Bill Cosby was a long time ago, but when you were describing that moment there that you saw in a sense the, the keystone being pulled away, that the stories were starting to come out. Your responses were, I'm sure, very complex. And how would you characterize those? Well, for many years, I had compartmentalized the information, the entire story of what had happened to me, and tucked it away someplace very, very deep. <laughs> it's funny, because now that the, the battle is over, um, and things come out, and I speak of it, it's much more emotional now than it was then. Then it was a battle, it was a fight, and you stand up and you do it. But when I speak of it now, I'm in, da in danger of going to pieces, you know. But I thought, yeah, well, they're, finally they're going to get him. But I hadn't thought that he was actually continuing to do it. I thought that I was the only one, and each of us thought we were the only one, and it was a big surprise when, when things broke loose. But when I heard that Andrea had been attacked, and I thought, as I said on the tape, I, they're going to get him now. Now somebody will get him, and that's, he has it coming. And then I started hearing the district attorney in Pennsylvania do this DA speak for, they're not going to charge her. They're not going to charge him. I could tell the, the, the attenuation of the information, the sort of distance that he put between himself, the not relating and, and telling people that his father, Bruce Castor's father, was Bill Cosby's real estate agent, sold him the house that he lived in. They were socially connected. There's a fabric of society in that county. And I just, I kind of lost it. I started calling. I called Bruce Castor. I called the assistant DA. I called the watch captain <laughs> and the police force. I called the crime lab. I called the detectives. <laughs> I called every, I called the mayor. <laughs> I called everybody. 
just so you know, she's a I lawyer mean, I, now. I, I, I was on the phone, you know, I mean, I was on the phone, and nobody, uh, finally, Risa, what's her last name? Risa Furman. Risa Furman, who was his assistant, who's since become a judge, uh, and who, in fact, reopened the case later, she actually called me back and interviewed me, and I hope... And I believe that that interview with me led her to believe, because she had prosecuted a lot of sex, sexual attack cases, that, that, that I was believed by her and that that was an influence later when she reopened the case. And did you get in touch with some of the other survivors? Did you share stories and, and kind of reinforce your own conviction that no, you weren't making it up? No, you see, this is what surprises... I'm sorry to interrupt you, Pat. No. Uh, what surprises people is that I did not meet Andrea Constand until the day that Bill Cosby was sentenced. Mm. In 14 years of time that it took to put him in jail, we never met. I never spoke to her. I never spoke to anybody else. Uh, briefly, Barbara Bowman, I spoke to Barbara. Uh, once our civil suit began, we were together. Um, but we never met, and I cautioned people outright and, and publicly to say, let us not cross-pollinate our stories. Let our stories be our stories, because otherwise people are going to say, well, we just mixed it up, put it all together, and created something out of whole cloth, and that wasn't true. Is this why you became a lawyer, you think? You know, no, I became, the... I became a lawyer because I have a big mouth. <laughs> And I'm not qualified to serve anybody. I would go, what? You want to eat what? No, don't be ridiculous. You know? so, I flew for TWA as a stewardess for about an hour. I was fired for that. So, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of cho choices for a second career. So a lawyer, and you know, I actually, you know, was, law school was great. It's like reading trashy magazines, you know, it's gossip. It's, each, each case is only about 10 pages long in any book, and it's every horrible thing anybody's ever done to anybody else in 14 areas of law. So it was like, really? You know, I was like into it. So. And then there's a quiz at the end, you know, they call it the state bar, and it was like, yeah, okay. So that's what I did. When, when, when you step forward, when you made the decision to be there in public. In Andrew's case, that decision was made for her, but did you have the opportunity to make that decision yourself, whether or not you would step forward and be identified with this and take part? Well, I did when I went on my telephone rampage. I, uh, I ended up calling Andrea's lawyers because I just it felt, you know, the penny finally dropped, and I thought, well, why don't I call somebody who's actually involved? So I called her lawyers, and uh, Dolores... Triani said to me, will you speak publicly? And I said, sure, you know, not having a clue what was going to happen. And then they, she said to me this fateful thing. She said, will you use your name? And I went, oh, sure. <laughs> you know, what did I know? Oh, my. Well, so, did you know what you were in for? Well, you know, I did. I'd had other f sort of fat cases, and I'd been in the papers and quoted. And, but I was pretty much full of myself. I was at the top of my legal game. I was a good trial lawyer, if I don't say so myself. And... I was not publicly shy, uh, you can tell. Uh, I'm not trembling because I'm nervous, I have Parkinson's, but, and so I get a little jittery, but it doesn't hurt, not, not to worry. Uh, but I, uh, you know, I just came forward, so I, I contacted uh, Nikki, I believe, and the two of us had this long interview, <laughs> and then my face was on the cover of this magazine, <laughs> and she sent it to me, hard copy in the mail in an envelope, and when I opened the envelope, I tell you, I went, oh, uh-oh, <laughs> whoa. Like, the whole thing is my face. I thought, oh, dear. <laughs> Might have gotten a little carried away, you know? <laughs> 
for, for you, because you said you compartmentalized this, did you ever have any ex expectation that he would be called to account, that he would come to justice? No, and I said to him after the event, sometime I bumped into him because I was not able to reach him because I did my telephone rampage then too, but nobody would take my call. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, you know, I'm going to tell every person I meet who will hold still long enough what you did to me. And I'm going to say it every day, all the time. And it's funny because in the November before I actually spoke out, I had sold a pickup truck to a fella, and he was stuck in the cab with me as we're driving around. And I told him the story, and he's like, oh, please. <laughs> oh, God, I have to buy this truck, get this woman out of here, you know. Like, and, and people, nobody wanted to believe it. And I grew up overseas. I, my parents were civilians attached to the military, so I didn't have the same kind of, I wasn't imbued with the sort of Cosby mythology at all. I hadn't really seen his show. I didn't know a lot about him, though. When I was in college, I Spy was hot stuff. But we watched Man from Uncle, so that's how we did that, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't have the same kind of, you know, hesitation about him. To me, he was a villain. And I didn't want this person to be in the world by herself up against yeah. that madman. She's so good. She's a much better person than I am. She's, she is. She's very, she's just wonderful and she's pure and she was just going to take a beating and because I'd been a lawyer for quite a while by then, I thought, oh my God, they're going to kill her. And I just decided I had to, I just had to step up and I did. Yeah. Well, and I don't regret it. And if I had it to do again, I would do it again. <laughs> Let's bring on a couple of other people and first look at a couple of videos of them. First, Lily Bernard and then Therese Serenese. Bill Cosby was using the race car to try to solicit pity for him. More than a third of us Bill Cosby survivors are black women. And we have an extra burden in speaking out against him because the black public attacks us for having brought the black man down, you know, for having spoiled the legacy. That's BS. You know, Bill Cosby destroyed his own legacy. <laughs> he held out his hand and there was two large white pills in it and he said, take these. And I was bent forward, and the, the reason I know that is I looked in the mirror and saw what was happening. And so that's why I didn't forget it. I saw what was happening to me, and um, it, it wasn't good. When that deposition came out, I was shocked. Darn yeah. and Therese Serenies, come on up. Really? I want to ask Lily first, though, because about a third of the victims, the survivors, were women of color. Black. Black. <laughs> because there are more who are, like, there's an Asian one. Okay. Yeah. Um, and we, we've seen it even recently with when obituaries were written of Kobe Bryant, when Gail King asked about his death and the sexual assault accusations, she got threatened because she was accused of bringing down a powerful black man. The same thing happened here. 
with the Cosby case. Right. Can and you talk about that and yeah. how the pressure, kind of pressure that you saw and felt for saying what you said? Yeah, mm -hmm. and you're talking about Snoop Dogg. Yes. Right. Whose mother eventually told him to back off, and he did. Right. And, uh, and Ambassador Susan Rice said, you better watch out because you're coming after an army. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what Bill Cosby finally realized, that it's an army of women who've come up and spoken out against him. But absolutely, as a black woman, we carry an extra burden. We're accused by our black community, and particularly by black men, as being co-conspirators of this justice system that disproportionately incarcerates black men, and that's totally absurd. Um, Jewel Allison, one of our Cosby survivors, wrote a couple of wonderful articles about this where she said it's not about race, it's about rape. Mm. Did you get the same kind of personal vitriol <laughs> for this? Do I? Oh, still, we're using the present tense. I have been attacked physically in person by strangers. Um, I'm very sad to say that the majority of the people who do attack me for having spoken out against the beloved Bill Cosby are black men. Mm. And um, it's very painful. It's uh, ex extremely painful, but yeah, I get attacked. Uh, Nikki, was this a surprise element when you were starting to do your reporting? Um, this, because this, again, was maybe sort of new. Yeah, I mean, it was. I didn't expect it to turn on race because Bill Cosby is not your typical African-American defendant. He had seven private criminal attorneys at his second trial. I've done stories um, and that have freed African-American men who were wrongfully convicted. And to a one, they had public defenders who were overwhelmed and didn't do their jobs. You know, this case is not about race. It's about power, wealth, and privilege and how that shielded him from justice for four decades. Mm. So it did surprise me because I think it's absurd and it's an insult to the African-American defendants who are wrongfully accused and wrongfully incarcerated. And, I, you know, it is, it is astonishing that he still tries to pull that. And, Therese, for you to come into this after, you know, your years of suffering in silence, and, and I have to say one thing remarkable, and, and this struck, struck me, as it came to me, Nikki, was how many of the women who were survivors actually told their friends, their parents, contemporaneously. This wasn't something that came up out of whole cloth 20 years later. And the fact that they did confide in people made it so much more powerful. And their stories, I would think, more credible. But Therese, how did you come to terms with not only what happened to you, but how you decided to tell your story? Well, when my incident happened, it was in the 70s, and times were totally different. There wasn't even a word, date rape, person that you know rape. There was no, no, none of those words were available. And, and times were so different. So even though I told my mother, um, later I told my sister, she told me I better not tell because she worked at the Hilton Hotel and she would lose her job. And, and she also said, you know, don't tell because they find people dead in the desert all the time. So there were fears about what might happen to you if you came forward. And they were very real because at the same time, they were finding young girls in the desert. Um, so years went by and um, when I heard Andrea's story, I, um, I wanted to, to tell. I was angry that this man was still doing this. And I had to live my whole life seeing those books 
America's Dad, watching that show. My son even watched the Cosby show that everybody loved, that one for kids, uh, Picture Pages. And I remember hearing that, and I, I didn't make him turn it off because I, I knew this was something I just had to live with. It was a secret. And so it, it was just the way it was for women. And so um, by the time I saw Andrea's story, I was really angry about what happens to us. And I wanted to tell, and I called up the police department and um, faxed in a paper that told what happened. But then we all know it did get buried again. He was able to bury it, and he buried it for nine more years. So after um, I tried to tell again, and it was buried, I had to just try to forget about it, which was what I was trying to do and what we all did for all of our lives. By the time 2014 came out, I don't think I had cable or whatever, but I had some internet, and I was on a vacation or working or something, and I came back, and I heard her, it was out again. And it's like, oh my God, I've got to hurry up and tell before it disappears again. Because I thought, they'll just bury it again. And this time, it stuck. And it was almost like a miracle because um, by, by the time I gave a, an interview, um, I, just, I just spilled everything I could think about uh, to the people that were interviewing me because I thought, it's my only chance, and then it's probably going to disappear again. And meanwhile, that's a whole lifetime of differences in the way the world works for women. And now we are totally um, in a different place mm -hmm. in the world. And it's not like we're Victoria and Valentino and Sunny Wells and maybe I, I'm a little later than them, were, but it's a different world now, and we have to push forward. It's changing, but it does cause you a lot of um, uh, changing of your thought process. Now we can speak. Mm -hmm. Before, it was like we all had duct tape on our mouth, and we didn't matter. Mm -hmm. So I say, we matter now. Our there, lives matter. I'm going to get... <laughs> a couple of things happened that really almost serendipitously changed the course of this case. One of them was the accidental release of Bill Cosby's deposition. And you wonder how far the case would have gone had that not happened. That was a thunderclap, wasn't it? Right. Well, the AP had petitioned and got and was trying to get unsealed some motions from Andrea's case where excerpts of the deposition were attached. And even what was in that was pretty astonishing. It was the admission about drugging, um, giving quaaludes to Therese. But yes, then the, the court reporter ex thought the whole deposition had been released and a couple of news organizations got copies of it. And that's what really made it explode because, you know, here's Mr. He'd done an album in the early 70s, Kids Say No to Drugs. You know, he had been, you know, I don't drink because I, don't, I took two sips of a beer in my teens and I didn't like the loss of control, so I don't drink. He was Mr. Squeaky Clean and here he's admitting to giving drugs to women he wanted to have sex with. So yeah, it was astonishing and that's what helped spur the reopening of Andrea's case, which I was completely shocked by. Of all the things I thought would come out of the all, you know, there were 50 other women coming forward by this point, Andrea's case being reopened was not something I thought was going to happen. I, I just didn't, yeah. I didn't it was astonishing. And your case, Andrea, just squeaked under the statute, right, of limitations for... Yes, it did. When it was reopened in, uh, in 20... 2015. Yeah, 20, 2015. Yep. And Lily, the other thing that seemed to move this forward was the fact that 
paradoxically, there were two men who had something to say about this, and one of them was Hannibal Burris, who was a black comedian who went on stage and was talking about Bill Cosby as a rapist. And then there was a reporter in the audience, and all of a sudden it got new and maybe a little more serious attention. Yeah, that's striking, and I just think it lends to the fact that at the core of all of this is a real visceral hatred for women and a, devalu a devaluation of our voices and that, that it did take a man for uh, the floodgates of our voices to open. So that's just, to me, like another marker of misogyny. Yeah, well, God bless him. <laughs> God bless him for opening the gates. Whoever it is that opened the gates, they did it for us, and they did well, and we're glad to be here. The other one was a 90-year-old man named Frank Scotty who'd worked with Bill Cosby, yeah. who had money orders that Cosby had, had drafted, I guess, to pay young women over the years. And this 90-year-old guy who was, like many of the survivors, accused of trying to get his 15 minutes mm -hmm. of fame by the really, Cosby he, team. He was trying to clear his conscience. These money orders had his name on them, not Cosby's, but you know, Cosby had had him do that for years. And William Morris was doing the same thing. And you know, Andrea was offered an educational trust after she went to police, which she did not take him up on. And I certainly don't blame any woman who did take an educational trust from him, but I wonder how many there are out there who took them and that bought their silence. Lily, so often we see that changes in society happen because of things that occur to famous people, because they become the benchmark that if it happens to X, this becomes um, possible. So many women who've survived this, you know, were hard on themselves, were critical of themselves, um, damaged themselves in a way, blaming themselves and isolating themselves, as we heard Tamara talk about. Um, do you think we are at the point or near the point where society will stop penalizing women for this? Because so many women's careers suffered. So many blocks were put in their way. Um, in some cases, I gather from the podcast by Mr. Cosby himself. Yeah, I, um, thank you for asking that question. First, I want to acknowledge all the Cosby Survivor Sisters yes. in the audience. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> There are more than a half a dozen, and um, one of them, Janice Baker Kinney, was on the on the witness stand during the trial, and she was so fierce and courageous as she was being attacked, really re-victimized, blamed and shamed, her character assassinated, and and she just represents this tremendous strength. But a number of us, like Barbara Bowman, Eden Turrell, Victoria Valentino, Linda Kirkpatrick, we are. Um, we are also from the entertainment industry, some of us, and members of the Screen Actors Guild for a long time. And what we do represent is artists whose careers were derailed, not only because of the blackballing by our um, sexually violent predator, but also by the trauma, the tremendous trauma. And if you were to look at our lives, uh, paralleled with the lives of uh, Weinstein survivors and R. Kelly survivors, whom we've been privileged to, to know as sisters in our extended family, you'll see a common thread of dysfunction, a common thread of suicidal ideation, of uh, pairing up with abusive par romantic partners, and then our children suffering from this generational trauma. So the impact of the rape by Bill Cosby upon our lives has not only affected our careers and our health, our mental health. Some of us have secondary 
illnesses. I, I suffer Graves' disease. Tomorrow has Parkinson's disease because it's not uncommon for trauma survivors to also have secondary diseases. Linda can talk. Linda Kirkpatrick can talk about how we just end up with, you know, really ab abusive uh, partners. But then how our children suffer. If you look deeply into our, our children's lives, you'll find um, a lot of really deep uh, mental health and addiction issues in some of the in some of the cases. And this is all a result of uh, of, of rape. The, and, and rape, of course, is the linchpin that patriarchy has used, has implemented, really, to uh, empower itself. Like in the bowels of history now, we, in 2020, are like the spokes of this wheel of evolution that's just churning and churning, you know, the devaluation of, the devaluation of women towards you know the belief, the believability of women. So it's a it's a great historic moment that's happening, and and we the fact that we have to contend with uh, so much trauma, with you know our careers being compromised and our families being negatively affected, that we can stand up and change laws. I mean, half of a dozen of us Cosby survivors, led by Caroline Heldman, we abolished the statute of limitations on rape prosecution in California. We did. We still. We, we, solic we, solicited, we, solicited, we solicited Senator Connie Leiva to carry the bill for us. We lobbied, we campaigned, we testified in Senate hearings and council hearings. I bought the evidence that I had saved. I have a lot of compelling evidence and, and uh, third party witness testimonies. I brought that evidence with me because in my case, the incident happened just a few months outside of the statute of limitations that the prosecutor couldn't even consider pressing charges, but I bought that evidence and I showed it to every office of every legislator, every council person, every senator in the state of California so that we were able in six hearings to pass the vote with unanimous hearings. And so we have no statute of limitations in California. So there's this, there's, this there's this juxtaposing of the vulnerability, the, the pain and the trauma against this tremendous courage. So yes, you can have pain, yes, you can have suffering, but the human spirit is more resilient. And with that pain and suffering, you can rise up and, and really impact tremendous change for society. Mm -hmm. And the, Amen. Yeah. the extending of the statute of limitations in the case of California, eliminating it has been a profound change that's come yeah, out. Yeah, eliminate. And, and, okay. and other survivors, Kazi survivors, extended the statute of limitations in Nevada. Weinstein survivors with Time's Up extended the statute of limitations on rape prosecution in New York. So you see survivors that you actually see the necessity of our suffering mm -hmm. for these laws to change. We actually needed to suffer in order for these laws to finally start catching up with modern culture. Yeah. Tomorrow you had something? Well, I, I practiced law for 30 years, and I love trial law, love the law. I want to make it very clear that I still believe that every woman who brings a case against a man that she's accusing of rape or sexual assault has to prove her case. But I don't think that the standard, the burden of proof, that the standard that she has to meet is to have herself killed in public because she has brought the case. I think that she should be held to a standard of proving her case, of proving what was done. I think the characterization of these cases as he said, she said is incorrect. Because a lot of people misunderstand and say, well, there was no evidence. Yes, there was. There was her testimony. Her testimony is evidence. Yes. That is evidence in a court of law. So we need that to happen. But she shouldn't have to if, if, if your house is burgled, the, the person who 
makes you don't have to prove that you're a wonderful person to charge the burglar. But if you're raped, you have to prove that you're a wonderful person in order to prove a rape. That's crap. That just should not happen. And so there shouldn't be a double standard for women. And the business of, well, what were you wearing and where were you? There, there should be a limit on the inquiry of why the woman is to blame for what happened to her. But there should be an inquiry to a certain extent of how that came about. She should take care of herself and watch out. But in my particular case, I was having lunch at lunchtime in a public restaurant with Bill Cosby, a beloved celebrity, his friends at Figaro's on Melrose in LA, and, when the, and I was sick and I was telling him, look, I have to go home, I can't work today for his partner. And he said, how about some cold medicine? Maybe you'll feel better. Now in that setting, it never occurred to me to say, oh dear, is he giving me drugs? It was like, sure, okay, great, contact or Actifed or whatever it was. I took those pills and as I began to melt into my lunch, I heard him say, oh well, now she must have been sicker than we thought. And he took me home and he raped me. So how can, you know, at a certain point, if that's not good enough for me to be able to say this is what happened and I should be accused, well, what were you wearing at lunch? That's a ridiculous way to go. But I want to be sure to say that I don't want women to, or men or, any, or society to feel that we won't have to prove our cases, we shall prove our cases. But we want a fair chance and yes. a fair shot. From websites to online stores to marketing tools and analytics, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build a beautiful online presence and run your business. And there's no better time to get started than at the start of a fresh new decade. Are you a writer ready to up your online presence? A gamer getting serious about your sport? Or a personal trainer whose goal is to help others reach theirs? Squarespace allows you to turn any cool idea or project into a professional business with sleek, ready-to-use designs. Plus, drag-and-drop tools let you build a modern website by making these templates your own. Once you're all set up, easy-to-use analytics will help you grow in real time. You can quickly understand your audience with tools like page views, traffic sources, most-read content, and more. And if you ever need any help, Squarespace has 24-7 award-winning customer support you can count on while you run your business effectively. Plus, you never need to patch or upgrade anything ever. To start reaching your own goals, go to squarespace.com slash Chasing Cosby for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code Chasing Cosby to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash Chasing Cosby with offer code Chasing Cosby for 10% off. Between hitting the gym, eating cleaner, or learning a new skill, there are a lot of ways we can better ourselves in the new year. Yet, I can't think of one resolution that's more important than tackling high interest credit card debt. But taking charge of your finances can seem daunting and unmanageable, making it impossible to know where to begin. That's where Upstart.com comes in. Upstart is the revolutionary lending platform that offers smarter rates to help you pay off high-interest credit card debt. Upstart goes beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. They make it fast, simple, and easy to check your rate. And since it's just a soft pull, it won't even affect your credit score. Upstart is so easy that over 400,000 people have used the platform to pay off credit cards and meet their financial goals. See for yourself why Upstart is ranked number one in their category with over 300 businesses on Trustpilot. And hurry to upstart.com Cosby to find out how low your Upstart rate can be. 
Checking your rate only takes a few minutes, so go to upstart.com slash Cosby to get started today. We have, some, we have some questions from the audience. I'd like each of you to address it briefly. Um, and maybe we'll start with Therese. What does justice look like for you? For me? Justice for my case, for Andrea, for who? The audience just says you, so each of you in turn oh, can be you. For me. Okay, well, I'll never get justice. The statute of limitations made sure of that. So um, uh, watching Andrea got justice, that helped. That helped tremendously. The sisterhood now that we embrace each other, they all stood up. We all stood up as a group behind Andrea. Andrea. So that has helped. I'll never get justice. Um, I have to live with that. Uh, that's just the way it, it is from the time I was born and lived. And, um, and that will always uh, hurt me, that I, I'm still angry about that. Um, I'm also angry that in the beginning when I told my story on television, I just wanted him to apologize. I just wanted him to feel sorry that he hurt Patrice Picking, which was my name at the time, and now have watched him at the trials and having seen what the team did to all the people that testified, um, I'm angrier probably than ever because he is smug and he says he is never going to admit to his crimes. And, and I guess it bothers me. Um, can't do anything about it, so I just have to live with it. Um, now I'm at a place in my life where I, in my state, Florida, um, I'm with some people and we help to do things against human trafficking, and I'm also um, involved in things mm -hmm. uh, in regard to the opiate crisis, which has personally affected my family. And so um, all I can do is push forward into the issues that we have now at hand, and... Um, that has to be by the wayside. He could be as Thank smug you. as he wants. He's not having a good time. That's right. <laughs> he can be as smug as he wants. He's not having a good time. So, so Lily, the same question. Yes, what, what does justice look like to me? It looks like a slug or a snail or a sloth or a tortoise trying to keep up with the hare who's patriarchy. But it also looks like a mockery. It looks like a three-ring three circus of the Cosby Survivor sisters who are sitting here in the first row, all but one, was at the trial. So many survivors here. Yeah, Thank we were at the, yeah, we were at the trial. And uh, Sunny Wells over there, who was, uh, a, she's a great singer and actor. She was just a child when Cosby drugged and raped her. Um, and to be in that justice system and to see just the horrors that were allowed, uh, the, the re-victimization of the women. It was just appalling. And we were triggered. Sunny was triggered. I was triggered. Uh, we were actually dissociating, and uh, many of us were, Victoria, Valentino. And it was a really difficult, uh, really difficult to see this mockery, this three-ring circus where rape myths were being flung at the jury, you know. But, but Dr. Barbara Ziv, who was the forensic psychiatrist, was the first uh, witness, the expert witness in the, in the retrial, who also, I, I believe, testified in the Weinstein. She was able to edify the jury and to explain um, some of these myths, for example, that the reason why 
uh, rape survivors typically go back to our rapists is not because it was consensual, it's because more than 85% of rapists are people whom we know intimately. So we go back because we have a relationship with them. We want to make it right. You know, we want to we want to confront them and find out why. So Barbara Ziv and the the Weinstein uh, guilty verdict, the Cosby incarceration provides hope, but still uh, the justice system is light years be behind modern culture. Uh, Tamara, what does justice look like for you in this? Well, I, I have a deep belief in the jury system. I've tried a lot of cases. I, uh, I've put cases to juries. I, uh, if I can't win the case, I settle the case. Uh, that's how that's damage control. But I have had juries come back to me, uh, not to defeat me as a jury, but to say, we didn't get it, or the evidence wasn't clear to us, or you didn't prove your case. You know, People ask, what, what is the definition of reasonable doubt? And I tell juries that you take a cardboard box and you put a cat and a mouse in the box, you tape it up, you leave it a half an hour, you come back and you open it up and there's only a cat. So the question becomes, may you assume that the cat ate the mouse? Mm -hmm. And all the, little, all the juries will go, oh yes, and you go, no, no, you have to look at the box. If there's a hole in the box, you may no longer assume that the cat ate the mouse. And so justice is, is, justice is achieved when you put up the best case you can, you put up the best evidence you can, and you slug it out, and you let the jury decide. And I think in both of these cases, uh, Cosby went to jail for three to 10. Weinstein is convicted, and somebody asked me how I felt about the Weinstein conviction because he was acquitted on the most serious charges. And at his age and weight, as my grandfather used to say, uh, <laughs> it's good enough. He's going to <laughs> He's going to go in, and he's not going to have a good time. He's hiding out at the hospital now like a little girl. But, you know, he can do that all he wants. But he's going to go down to Rikers, and some people are going to explain a few things to him, and he's not going to have a good time. So I see justice in it. I trust juries. I hope that people will continue to trust juries. And make it always 12, not 9, not 6. Make it 12. Put 12 good people tried and true in there and let them decide. I think they did well. I'm glad of it. I'm glad. Andrea, you had the opportunity <laughs> or the necessity of sitting in the courtroom and facing him. Mm -hmm. So for you who had that moment that so many survivors will not get, what is justice in this case? What does it mean for you? Well, I actually, I mean, I echo a lot of what they said, so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to repeat it, but there's a few things. Justice... Right now, justice looks like no comment because Cosby's in jail. Um, but justice also for me, um, there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of work to do, and I think Tamara kind of touched on that. Uh, we've got to talk about consent. Consent came up for uh, the jurors wanted to know what consent, what the definition of consent was in Pennsylvania. And the jurors also came back with the first question in the Weinstein trial about consent. So I think in terms of how consent is defined in the court of law, there's, there's work to do. And I think I want to also echo Tamara's comments in terms of um, setting up a better, safer framework for um, 
you, you know, I understand the rights and the privileges of, of the defendant, but I think going forward, times have really changed in terms of um, how prosecutors are really framing their cases and the damage that they're trying to do to women and whether, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of backfiring. I think we, we saw that in, in the Cosby case as well as the Weinstein case. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, there's definitely work to do, but also I, I, these women all lifted me up. And even though I got justice, I hope that there's a silver lining and a, a sliver, you know, of hope um, that really comes from um, what they gave me in terms of persevering for them and really sticking in the fight um, as difficult as it was. Um, there's another audience question I have for each of you, but I'd like to ask Nikki, how did working on the book and the podcast change you? Are you a different person coming out the other end of this? You can't hear these stories one after the other and not be affected by them, no matter how long I've been covering this. And to hear the pain and the fact that these women, you know, like Sunny, you know, it's been almost 50 years since it happened. And she fall, she's still, you know, she just she falls apart when she talks about it. P.J. Mastin, any of these women, when they talk about it, well, most of them, some of them, I think, have been able to channel it a little differently. Um, it's heartbreaking. You know, it's heartbreaking. Even when I listened to the interviews on the podcast, I found myself getting emotional, and I did those interviews with them. So, and, you know, what was really, you know, there were moments I had writing the book, though, like, um, I didn't realize what role Lily played, and I talk about this a lot. You know, I didn't realize what role Lily played on The Cosby Show, that guest starring role Well, she was the zany Mrs. Minifield, and I was a Cosby Show fan. I remembered that role. She was fantastic in it, and actually knowing the horrors she was going through right after it, I still can't believe she persevered. But when I heard her story, I, I remember thinking, oh my God, not her too. And when I realized that was her role, and she was a victim, and what he'd done, and I already knew who she was, and that she'd been drugged and sexually assaulted by him, but not that role she played. And at that point, I couldn't watch the show anymore. Before I could sort of distance, I could separate it a little bit. You know, I come across it on TV One, I write about that in the book. But after that, I was done. So many, like there were, five, there were agencies sending five or six young models a week to Bill Cosby while he was filming the Cosby show in Queens. And many of those women later came forward. They were extras on the show. Like you'll see Jennifer Kaya Thompson, who's in the podcast. She was Jane Doe number two. She was an extra in the episode of Theo's Prom. You can see her walking to her locker. And there's many of these women who, who also film these extra roles. And after, especially after Lily's, I was like, I'm always going to be looking in the background at the extras going, was she a victim? Was she a victim? Because so many of them were, you know? So that's, that's how it's, it's changed me. It changed, you know, I really have more of an even appreciation for the kind of lifelong damage sexual assault does to a survivor. Um, some, you know, there's PTSD, there's um, depression, there's anxiety, there's being triggered. Many of them have been suicidal, but managed to come back from it. Um, there's cutting, there's, you know, over, um, addiction issues. You know, there's, there's lifelong trauma that happens with this. Some can move past it and be okay, and some can't. And, you know, it's just a very individual thing. So it's just, you know, Sunny was a 17-year-old virgin when he did that to her. And he, she knew him through her mother, who was an agent, and they were friends. She'd known him for a couple of years, and he did that to her. And some women have never been able to go on to have you know, lasting relationships as a result of it. But also, excuse me, I'd like to say also, something huge was stolen from these women. 
This woman would have had a career. She would have been a career. She'd be acting today. She would be known to us, and we would admire her work. Barbara Bowman, if you look at her pictures as a child, she was gorgeous. She was world-class. She had a chance at a career. The Weinstein victims, these girls had careers. The things that were stolen by these two individuals in particular are very, very large. And Eden Turrell, another Cosby survivor, was also a guest star on The Cosby Show. Yeah, twice. 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 And she was um, sexually assaulted by Bill Cosby in the studios. So, um, wonder which of which of you you would like to answer this question. If you could ask Cosby one question today, what would it be? Not a thing. I wouldn't talk to him if my life Waste depended of time. on it. <laughs> Waste of time. Yeah, same. I, 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 Better things to do. I have nothing to say to that man. Nothing. I, I wouldn't ask him anything. I know who he is. He doesn't yeah. even deserve he, he our attention. He would have no answer for me. Well, I just, I actually want to follow up because you <laughs> talked about justice and I want to come back to that because um, there was something said about remorse. And I think, um, you know, to kind of take, to, to kind of like not necessarily think about remorse and to kind of put the ball in the survivor's court, finding peace is really, really important. And I think if you're sitting waiting for somebody to apologize, show remorse, have remorse, that may never come. And so I think at a certain point when you're, if you want to have your own peace of mind from a survivor's standpoint, it's probably the best to have to forgive and get support and find peace with that because I think you're going to be kind of like grasping at straws and struggling always wanting that apology and and always defining your life by him right well so it's kind of like to take that and to take the power back and not necessarily looking for remorse or an apology it doesn't it doesn't matter the remorse is is maybe better for the perpetrator's life or karma, (laughs) but it doesn't matter. Like, you can still thrive and... You're not going to give them that power anymore. Exactly. I I think of the rebuke that was issued to Elizabeth Warren when she talked too long. Still, she persisted. (laughs) And I think of all of you and how remarkably you have persisted in all of this, and all of you survivors out here in the audience as well. And I'll, I'll wrap up with Nikki and ask you what's next for us. What more will we hear about Bill Cosby? Have we heard the last of Bill Cosby from you? From me? Oh, well, we'll have to see what happens. I mean, I <laughs> still would hope we could do some kind of docuseries. I think there's been no real definitive story on Bill Cosby told yet um, from the survivor's point of view. Uh, I think what the one thing the podcast showed is how powerful these survivor stories are. When people hear them, they believe them. Um, we got, they got to tell their stories at length in the podcast where other shows have just sort of done dribs and drabs and pieces here and there. But you hear these women tell their stories at length and it's very powerful. And when people hear that, they believe it. I mean, the podcast has done extremely well. So um, I just hope that we could get it to, you know, 
a large audience because Cosby still controls the microphone a lot. You know, he does anything and it makes news. And there's still as a lot we of saw with the remarks just from his spokesman about Harvey Weinstein. Right. Right. And he says um, he's never going to express remorse because he did nothing wrong and it's not consensual. And he gets headlines every time he says mm. something like that. Yeah. And I just think there needs to be some balance out there because, as I say, like everybody thinks they bases their opinion on this case on emotion, not facts. You know, mm. and so I think once people have read my book or listened to the podcast, they believe it and they don't want to. There are Cosby supporters who are writing comments going, I didn't believe these women when they came forward, but now, now mm. I believe them. Um, but I just would encourage people to seek out facts, too, instead of just basing their decisions on emotions. So you should follow the Chasing Cosby podcast on Apple. You should follow Andrea's foundation when it comes online and recommend it to your friends. um, Because women need therapy, and they need support, and they need help. Otherwise, what happened to them will affect them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, and, and their families. Yes, it's the as trickle a result, down as right, yes. to the collateral children. damage. Absolutely, Andrea, you were going to say. Yeah, and I, I really think uh, with where we're going, I think we're 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 getting somewhere. Um, and and I think to bring technology um, up to date with um, with this moment, um, I, I think I think it's going to transform a lot of. Um, how survivors access have instant access, which today, as you know, uh, we live in an app world. And to be able to literally download an app and start an e-chat conversation with a lawyer is pretty powerful. Game changer. Safe app. So let's thank, first of all, we'll get the audience, the survivors, the LA Times staff, Kate Kelton's photo or, uh, paintings out in the lobby, but mostly this extraordinary panel tonight. So enlightening, so encouraging, so courageous. Thank you all. Thank you for joining us. And we shall next meet at the parole hearing. That's it for this special bonus episode of Chasing Cosby. Thanks for listening. Our producer was Alexandra Zaslow, and our engineer was Mike Heflin. I'm Nikki Wisensee Egan. One more thing. If you like Chasing Cosby, please give us a five-star review on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. It really does help.